Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hacking HR podcast, the show where we talk about the amazing future of human resources and all things at the intersection of future of work, technology, innovation, organizations, transformation, and people. At Hacking HR, we believe that human resources can become the most important trailblazer, leading people and organizations successfully and effectively into the new reality of work and life. To do that, we must rise to the challenges of our times, shoot for the stars, and achieve our fantastic potential. During this show, we discuss ideas, insights, data, experiences, stories, and anything else that can contribute to helping you become and be a better HR leader and practitioner. Thank you so much for joining us today and enjoy the show. I think people get too overplanned about this. I think opportunities present themselves if you have an informed mind. But I've been quite lucky and I've had good top cover throughout the period, so I've been encouraged to rebel. In fact, I think I've only had one bad boss in my entire career, which is almost without precedent. Dave is the CSO and founder of Cognitive Edge. He has pioneered a science-based approach to organizations drawing on anthropology, neuroscience, and complexity science. Dave is a visiting professor at Hall University. His paper with Boone on leadership was a cover article for the Harvard Business Review in 2007 and won the Academy of Management Award for the best practitioner paper of that year. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Hacking Nature podcast. I am very excited to be talking with Dave Snowden today about so many things that we're going to be talking about, future, future things, if you will. But Dave, how are you doing? Let me just ask you that question to, to begin our conversation. Oh, I'm fine. I've tidied the study. The books are in order for the first time in living memory. And um, I haven't been at Heathrow Airport for six months, which is almost without precedent. But yeah, then that is fine. Yeah. Yeah, this is a, an interesting time. I think a lot of people that used to do a lot of traveling now are either using the time for writing or, you know, doing online bits and, and whatnot. So, but it's, you know, it's great to have you with me today. And I, I want to start the conversation by asking you something about your career. And you have been in finance, in accounting, in technology, a little bit of biology, so it's, you know, you've got a very diverse background. So let me ask you this. How does it all make sense together? Where, where does it all come together? Or how, if you will? <laughs> I think to some extent I stumbled into this. Um, I've always done what interested me and it's kind of like worked out. Yeah, so I did a degree in physics and philosophy. I was involved in the World Council of Churches for three years on the program to combat racism and other things. That was an eye-opener. That got me to parts of the world and made me aware of things I wasn't aware of before. Uh, I then got a job in HR, which is actually where I started a um, long time ago. Um, graduated from that into finance in the early days of computing and then decision support consultancy built three systems. Um, it's his early days. Became a general manager, then a strategy director, then IBM bought us and we beca I became part of a research group. And then seven years in IBM, which is more than enough to survive in the world's largest bureaucracy, and left to form Cognitive Edge. So it's kind of like work together. Um, 
I think people get too overplanned about this. I think opportunities present themselves if you have an informed mind. But I've been quite lucky and I've had good top cover throughout the period, so I've been encouraged to rebel. In fact, I think I've only had one bad boss in my entire career, which is almost without precedent. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Three or four pretty outstanding ones. Well, that, that, you know, that's fascinating. And the reason why, of course, I ask this question is not just curiosity, but, you know, very often you get people asking, hey, you know, Enrique, and I guess they ask you the same thing. I, you know, I want to get into the HR space or I want to get into the philosophy space or whatever it is, but I'm coming from this other background. So do you think I have a chance to get into this career? And, and of course, to me, coming from, from a diverse background, not as diverse as yours, but I'm, I'm a technologist and now I'm in HR. It's, it's sort of the same thing, right? It's, it's, it's combining this, all that we learn in different, in different um, spaces and making sense of it all in the work that we're doing. So do you, think, do you think learning of all these things that you have learned in your career makes your day-to-day work better by bringing all that knowledge to that one product that you may be developing at one time? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a generalist. I'm not a specialist. And, and part of the problem we got at the moment is there aren't many generalists left under the age of 55 mm-hmm. because the educational system has started to reward specialists rather than generalists. You know, so when I was at school, I did A-levels in physics, two separate A-levels in maths, in geology, in history. But if I hadn't read every book that the English six had read, I wouldn't consider myself a reasonable pupil. Um, so, you know, I was also president of the art society at school, even though I was in the sciences Mm. and that wasn't unusual, right? Whereas my own children, it's kind of like, oh, here's a module. Let's do a module. Let's pass an exam and move on. So I think that sort of integrative education has gone. Um, I think the other thing we had at school, which was fascinating is we debated every week. So you'd walk up to the front of the class you'd be given a card. I still remember the first one I got. So I'm 11 years old. I'm wearing long trousers for the first time because in those days you weren't allowed to wear long trousers until you went up to the grammar school, which in the coldest winter in British history in 1968, you know, walking three miles to school in shorts is still memorable. (laughs) And uh, I got given a card which said, um, you support capital punishment, uh, which is something I abhor. I think it's totally uncivilized. I despise any country which institutes it but I had to speak for seven minutes about something I didn't believe in in front of the whole class at the age of 11. And we did that every week from 11 to 18. And I carried on with it competitively at university. To be honest, I quite enjoyed it. And the point about that is it made you read everything. It made you curious. So we weren't taught to be generalists, but there were processes and peer expectation, which made us that. And I think that's far more difficult now for people in the modern company as well. And particularly if you look at, say, the Agile community, where I spend a lot of my time, um, it's highly specialist, it's highly detailed, it's highly mathematical, it's highly based on certifications and, you know, attending a three-week course and getting these names. It's, it's, it's a fairly hostile environment. I actually doubt somebody would get the opportunities I got these days. Yeah, you know, you are making me think about, I don't know if you know him, Sir Ken Robinson. Um, he has one of the most watched TED Talks ever. And one of the 
things he said in that TED talk, which really stuck in my mind, he said the following. He said, everybody's born curious, creative, with the capacity to use their imagination for problem solving. But all of that is educated out of us in the formal education system. And even when you fight that back, when you go to the corporate world, that creativity in, for what I've seen is processed or HR'd or in one way or another is taken out of you because what's expected from you is to do the same thing day in and day out. So what's, what comes to mind when, when, when I, I say that? Need to be cautious. I think you need to be cautious here, all right? Um, we had a formal education. I mean, I had to learn a poem every week and we performed a Shakespeare play every year. I mean, it was, and that's quite something to learn a part, yeah? Um, the point is there were processes and social things around that which extended what we did. And I think there is, and we now know from a cognitive neuroscience point of view, for example, learning your tables by heart, learning in a poem, um, actually improves cognitive capacity. So I think there is a danger in that some people start to become against formal education. Yeah, but he, did, he, didn't, he didn't say formal education as, as the formality no, of education, but, but as the traditional approach I, where... I had this debate, and first of all, I actually think the traditional approach is quite good. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's what happened after that traditional approach was abandoned, which became public. It was a move to modularization. Mm -hmm. It was also the move to define teaching goals. So, for example, our headmaster, who also taught, and that's important. I mean, we didn't have teachers who were professional administrators. He taught English, yeah? And he'd come into the class without a teaching plan. Um, but he got straight A's from everybody because he inspired us, right? He wouldn't survive in an environment where you have to have explicit goals and explicit objectives, you know, and learning plans. I mean, and the exams then were, were just as hard, all right? And I think that the danger is we've taken trust out of the system and we've, we've downgraded teachers. Mm. Um, everything has to be explicit. Everything has to be measured. Everything has to be checked. And the worry I have is that we then move into a sort of free form education in which kids can decide what they want to learn, which is actually quite bad for them at certain ages. And we teach creativity. We, didn't, we weren't taught creativity. We were put in context where we became creative. And that's a really important distinction. How, how about in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the workplace as a, as a system, right? Because when you come to work anywhere, I mean, of course, it depends on the role that you have and, and the company you're working for. But more often than not, you find people basically doing the same thing day in and day out. And everything has a standard process that they have to follow and creativity, well, it may be welcome sometimes, but very often it is as well, uh, I'm not gonna say punished, but it's uh, turned down, if you will, for the sake of doing the same process in the same way it was originally designed. And I think it's a both and not an either or. Um, so if I'm looking at, for example, health and safety issues relating to drug production, I kind of like, would like a lot of repetition and control, please. Yeah. Um, and there are certain aspects of work or certain disciplines that people should follow. So, for example, one of the areas I disagree with programmers on, I have actually fired programmers um, who write code twice. Mm -hmm. If there's a common unit across all, all modules, you write it once and you get it right, you put it in the version control. 
because you're never going to bloody well refactor it. Don't try and pretend you will, because we all know you won't, right? So I think there's there's a degree of discipline, um, which is which is necessary, and a degree of process control. I think the trouble is what happened with business process re-engineering was made worse with what I call six stigma. Um, was that basically all aspects of our life came under that control. And I think it's what happened with systems thinking in the 1980s and 1990s is the engineering metaphor of the firm started to dominate. So the concept, and that's when we get, you know, pseudosciences like Myers-Briggs creep into HR because they want to put people into categories because they're now widgets in a manufacturing process. I mean, that was inconceivable before systems thinking came along. And I think that's been the problem is, is the metaphor is wrong. And the metaphor needs to be an ecological metaphor, not an engineering metaphor, which you need, you need some wild gardens, you need some variety within the system. Um, and you also need to recognize different knowledge bases. So for example, when I was a general manager, um, it took me three years to get on the general management program because I had to do a year in sales and achieve my targets a year in production and achieve my targets and a year in support and achieve my targets. Because the argument was, if you haven't done these jobs, you can't possibly manage people in them. And it was completely true. I mean, I can sell, I wouldn't want to do it for a career. And I now know what it's like not to be able to pay the mortgage if you can't make a sale within the next three days. Yeah, so that experiential knowledge was part of the program. But, and also I expected to have a job for life, to be honest. I mean, I moved about, in, I only moved jobs consciously three times, right? And I'm 66 now. So I expected to be there because it, the firm was not renting my knowledge. I was gifting my knowledge in return for employment, social setting and everything like that. And again, what happened with systems thinking is people were treated like disposable units. It's like we will guarantee you two years employment. We'll give you a short term contract. Well, that produces a negative for the firm because now I will rent you my knowledge, I won't gift it. And that's a completely different relationship. And I'll see those two years as a way to build my CV because I know you're going to push me into another job afterwards and I'm not going to take risks or, or, or do things in different ways. Right? Is, is, that I, you, is that why perhaps you think that right now there is so much disengagement in the workplace, something around the lines of 70%, um, there is, I think, what, what then goes with that, you see, because you have this very rigid kind of like approach, people then start to talk about creativity. We never talked about creativity because we have plenty of time to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And utilization is now, I mean, the, the focus on efficiency is another problem. And if you're in the consultancy group, if anybody pushes, and a programming group for that matter, if anybody pushes your utilization above 60%, and that's in a junior grade, 40% in a middle management grade, 20% in a senior grade then you've just, you're just destroying the organization. You're destroying the learning network, the freedom to think. You know, people aren't robots in that sense. But again, that got driven in with process re-engineering. Um, and you've got these crazy dichotomies. So process re-engineering and learning organization came at the same time. And both from the same source. They're both systems thinking, they're both cybernetics. So you get this dichotomy between highly structured stuff and highly creative stuff. The reality is they go together. They should intertwine. They should be entangled. So when you imagine having this, you know, competing values in the organization where you need some level of discipline and uniformity, but you also need a level of, uh, uh, you know, openness, creativity, 
you know, imagination. When you think about the idea of letting people do the work that they need to do, but also have giving them the opportunity for learning, for building networks within their organization to become, well, you know, better professionals, of course. How, you, how do you imagine the workplace of the future looking like? Okay, so first of all, I mean, I know you're not directly referencing it, but I think the competing values framework is one of the most disastrous things ever visited on companies. I'm going to disagree with that, but why, why do you think so? It's okay. You can be wrong every now and then. Um, <laughs> we we, we it, both can. It, it creates a dichotomy, yeah? And nothing sits on that frame, all right? Um, the reality is, I mean, one of my hobbies is carpentry, all right? And there's a beauty and a completeness to that, right? And it's highly repetitious, but it's yeah. also highly creative. And there's a huge pleasure in manual labor. I mean, yeah, carpentry is one example on that, but I've, I've rebuilt three houses from scratch, even though I'm in a, a knowledge career. There's a pleasure and creativity in things which other people would see are repetitive. Yeah. Some people really want to work from nine to five to earn enough money to do other things outside of work. And they don't want management games and motivational courses and team bonding. They just want to do a job and get on with it. Right. Um, And as I said, I think when, certainly when I was at work, everything was kind of like intertwined. Um, So and any model which puts good things on one side and bad things on, on the other side, you'll find on social media, I attack it straight away because it's a false dichotomy. But listen, let me ask you this. You, using the example of carpentry that you just mentioned, you are doing a process that, I, that is very often highly repetitive for the, for the actual making of something. But in your mind, there's a creative process that is not repetitive. Maybe the process itself is, but the end product of the process is not because you're creating a house that is different from the previous house that you built. You're creating a cabinet, you're creating a table that looks different. Now the craft to make it happen may look the same, but the creative process to think about it may not be the same. You brought in a key phrase there, which is craft, right? And I think craft is different from process rigidity. Yeah, and I think the other problem with the sort of dichotomy thing is it comes off a Cartesian model of the human brain or a Cartesian model of consciousness. So kind of like how we've got body here and the brain here or this complete and utter nonsense about left and right brain thinkers, which is just really, really bad science. Yeah, yeah we don't have a logical side and a creative side. It doesn't work like that. Again, these things are entangled. Right? So I think the key thing is to recognize that there are beauty in many things. Yeah. Yeah. And the other danger is we tend to impose our own vision of what things should be on everybody else. So because we want to have space for creativity and time and do these sort of things, we just assume everybody else wants that. Or because we're frustrated, we don't, we assume that everybody else wants it. It's not necessarily the case. I mean, there's a huge, I've done a lot of, for example, ethnography. I remember um, spending a day sweeping metal scarf off the floor in a factory in Glasgow. You know, working with the apprentices, trying to understand how decisions were made at the floor level. And that was an apprentice model with some ritual humiliations and some shit work before you got to a different level and so on. But there was a pride in the work and a pride in the relationship, a pride in being accepted. 
So I think we need to be careful about culturally specific or, or culturally specific judgments about what matters for people in organizations. I, 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 I do love that. And um, I'm, gonna, I'm going to go back then to the question that I asked you before about the workplace that you imagine knowing and or be, go, starting from the premise that not everybody wants the same thing. And maybe people, some people may not want to be as creative as others. Some people may find joy, joy and, and, and meaningfulness in doing something that others may find boring. So how do you define and how do you imagine that workplace of the future looking like? I think, well, I think first of all, the, we need to stop thinking about individuals and thinking about groups of people. And this is a key complexity lesson that you should be focused on how things link, not what they are. And again, this has been a fundamental mistake of HR. It's, it's again, it's bad science. Uh, we're more defined by who we interact with than by things that we're born with. Yeah, and that changes over time. So it's ethical to manage how people connect. I'm not sure it's ethical to try and define what people are. Mm -hmm. um, I think apprentice models are key. We now know enough to know that without an apprentice model, there's whole bodies of learning that don't develop. So for example, the brain and the body take about two and a half years to co-evolve around a new knowledge process. Uh, driving, for example, um, you're not able to pay attention to a passenger without loss of driving competence for about two to two and a half years after you pass your test. So I think reintroduction of apprentice models and guarantees of longer term employment for key employees, I think that's going to happen. Because it's a security, but it's not the whole of the workforce. I think you're going to see a much more networked economy. The issue is how do we provide stability and security? Yeah. within that network because everybody talks about this and it's a good idea but then you get the gig economy and that's pure exploitation yeah and that's more and more the case and i think also we're going to have to see industry more interwoven with society because if you want people to take risks if you want them to experiment or if you want them to accept lockdown because this is the first of a series of lockdowns we're going to face over the next 20 or 30 years yeah um, they've got to be able to feed themselves and feed their family and be reasonably housed. So I don't think it's a matter of just looking at the workplace. I think it's a matter of looking at the workplace in the context of society. So we need to move towards a networked SME type environment as much as the big companies. We need people working from home, but also coming together in different settings. And that requires us to, to rethink the divide between industry and society in, in order to achieve that. That's, that's actually one of the, uh, the goals that I have been trying to achieve with Hacking HR. It is the building of community, you know, bringing people together to learn from each other, share ideas, collaborate across the world. I, you know, I'm a big believer in building all the possible bridges across regions, across countries, across industries, so that people can, you know, share knowledge and make themselves uh, better uh, collectively. What do you think are the you challenges? Need, you say that again? You need, early, you need it early enough as well. I mean, there, there are basic facts. I mean, one of the things we do, for example, is what's called transgenerational pairing. So we link people under 25 with people yeah. over 50. Yeah. Because brain plasticity starts to slow down in early 20s and opens up again 50s. And in terms of hunter-gatherer communities, you can see why that happens, yeah? 
Um, so we've actually found if you really want innovation and creativity, you put somebody very young with somebody very old in a pair in a company and get them to work together and come up with ideas, which also handle better integration. Uh, the group in the middle group are far less likely to do that, right? Um, because they're focused on career building and career development. Mm -hmm. um, so th those sort of things we need to start thinking about. And I think what I'm really arguing for overall is that we need a natural science-based approach to organizational design, not a social science approach. Because at the moment, we've got this obsession with cases. And yeah. in times of uncertainty, you don't want to follow best practice anyway. And the cases are always based. Sorry, my background's physics, all right? From a physicist's point of view, no social scientist ever has enough data to form any valid conclusion whatsoever anyway. There's a, I, I interviewed a, an innovation biologist recently, and she talked about the same thing. You know, she, she mentioned how important it is for us to observe the way nature behaves and, and try to, uh, you know, bring some of those models back to, back to the workplace and, and uh, you know, uh, the way we operate, um, you know, especially as, as, uh, as workplaces get more complex and, and the, the pre-packaged, predefined answers cannot respond or cannot encompass the things that are happening right now. So, um, so Dave, let me ask you this. What, what do you think is the role of HR in all this workplace that you are imagining, in this workplace integrated with society where there's more creativity, collaboration? Um, what do you think is the role of HR there? Is it HR or is it OD or what is it these days? I mean, um, when I first worked in HR, yeah, the HR director was the next major from the army with me, one other person, and a secretary. And they managed a 3,000-person company with considerable aplomb because managers actually did their own HR in the main. They were responsible for people. Then HR started to grow as a profession and became a bureaucracy. And I remember famously saying at one conference in South Africa, and it took people a few minutes in internet search to realize what I was saying and to realize they'd just been badly insulted, but I will repeat it now. Most HR departments have got a Stockholm Syndrome relationship with their CEO. Mm -hmm. They've actually got him weft into a terrorist you know, environment in which he actually thinks what they're telling them is the right way to do things. You know, constant reorganizations, constant attempts to make objective what can't be objective, management of salaries by spreadsheets and distributions. I mean, when I was a general manager, I used to have to take on a really low-grade project two months before salary reviews so I could employ enough part-timers to get my profile so I could pay my good people enough wages because I had to gain the system. You know? So I think one of the things HR needs to stop doing is being a bureaucracy. Mm. And it needs to stop dealing with explicit control mechanisms. Yeah. And it needs to start to realize that things like corporate values, corporate pur purpose statements, corporate visions, are not only a complete waste of time, they allow manipulative people to game the system at the cost yeah. of people who are generally trying to do their work. Um, so I think they need to be, and it's not so much coaching, and coaching has positive and negative aspects. I think they need to see themselves enablers. So there is still a, con a really important function of HR um, in legal compliance, but also in compliance on things like, you know, racism, sexism, all the things we've currently got. I mean, uh, yeah, IT is still the most misogynist profession 
and HR departments are actually weak at stopping that. Yeah. So I think there are a whole body of things at the moment which HR are not addressing and they should be addressing. Yeah, in terms of educational awareness and, and those sort of things. How, um, how, what do you think about the involvement of HR in functions that are not tra traditionally HR? Say, for example, digital, digital transformation processes in the organization, um, uh, you know, upskilling, reskilling, even though this may be, you know, a, this may be a function that pertains to all the leaders in the organization. What do you think is the you know, the, the, the idea of HR getting involved in all those areas? I, th I think HR has to be involved in those areas, but I think it needs to be involved. I mean, a metaphor I often use for chief knowledge officers, which I think is the same for HR people, yeah. is they need, to, they need to take think of themselves as librarians, not potential chief executive officers. Hmm. Because a librarian doesn't really expect to earn a huge amount of money and be top of the organization. But they really enjoy books and they enjoy linking with people books and making things happen for people. Yeah. And I think that's where the HR function should be. It doesn't mean you shouldn't see it as a career route. right? Um, and it doesn't mean you should necessarily stay in it for a long time. I think there's an argument for cycling people in and out of HR. Yeah, so they have some knowledge of that sort of background. But overall, I think the role is one to allow other things to happen within an organization and also to protect against excess because as companies get driven more and more into efficiency measures and cost reduction and one of the reasons i left hr is to be honest i got fed up of making people redundant yeah it was and and, and i still remember the time i moved into finance which is a good story right so we had a new financial director i'd only been in hr for nine months i thought our role was to look after the workforce and I thought he was bullying his employees. So I went along and told him, yeah, I'm 24 years old. This is a 45 year old newly appointed financial director in a large company. And I went and told him off. And I got thrown out of his office in an unceremoniously way. And next morning I get called in to the HR director who sat with Bob, who was a financial director. And I think, oh shit, I'm gonna get fired. <laughs> and um, he just discovered I was doing an MBA in financial management and had a accountancy qualification. And he gave me a choice. I could either go and work for him as his deputy or I could be fired for insubordination, which did I want. And I've never forgotten that because actually he was one of the best bosses I've ever had, all right? And nobody had ever stood up to him before. And, and there's two stories in that. I still think what I did was right. Yeah, and I think HR has to take the risk on behalf yeah. of employees to stand up. Yeah, and if you do, it kind of like works out. But for me, HR was a really valuable to, you know, year, year and a half. Yeah. Um, then I moved into finance. I was in the two sort of control functions. Yeah. Before I moved into building decision support systems and general management. Yeah. And that experience is really valuable. So cycling younger people through HR and allowing the ones who enjoy it to stay in is probably a better function than seeing it as a permanent long-term career. Yeah. And I think also there are a few too many qualifications around in personnel management. Yeah, the codification of bodies of knowledge generally damages professions. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that would be just one podcast dedicated to that because, well, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the dichotomy that you see between the, the rigidity of how those, uh, about the pace at which those body, bodies of knowledge and competences can change and what's happening in real life and in the workplace. Uh, Dave, as, as we wrap up this conversation, which has been fascinating, I, 
I want to end up asking you the same question that I ask everybody at the end of the podcast, which is, what are you the most excited about and what are you the most concerned about the future? Uh, what I'm most excited about is we've now got the basic science and the translation of the basic science to understand how to create a healthy economy and a healthy work environment. Yeah. And we haven't had it before. It's happened by accident, but we now do have the science of it and we know how to scale that science, or at least some of us do. I think the thing I'm most scared about is nobody is taking existential threat seriously. I mean, it's quite comical to be talking. Yeah, you know, we got COVID at the moment, right? That's going to go on for at least another 18 months. Yeah, in various forms. Uh, they're talking about armed troops on the M25 to cordon off London if it comes to it. Yeah, and that's in Britain. Yeah. Um, we got politicians who are, I mean, I never thought I'd see a position where ministers in the UK awarded contracts without tender to friends or their own family members that own family firms and nobody held them to account for it. Right. Yeah. So we got this tsunami of plague, this tsunami of corruption and populism. And then we got global warming coming around the, around the, around the corner. And if I was in HR today, I'd be trying to actually create resilience in my organization for those threats. Yeah, because the day-to-day -day stuff of managing a company is insignificant compared with what we're going to face as a species. Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite, a, quite a concern. And I am in agreement with you about the, you know, I, 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 I share the concern. And, and of course, one thing that I hope HR does is to get out of their, you know, little bubble of, you know, processes and compliance and recruitment and compensation and start understanding the many other things that impact the reality of, of work, the workplace and, and the workforce. So, so Dave, thank you so much for being with me, sharing all these thank insights you. and all these thoughts. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you, everybody. Stay tuned for the next Hacking Nature podcast. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for watching or listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please follow us on our social media and subscribe to our newsletter so that you can stay informed of all the things that we're putting together for you from the Hacking HR community. Thank you so much. Please continue to stay safe, stay well, stay strong, and we will see you soon.